Grab your popcorn and snacks. Find a comfy spot, take a seat or lie down, and let me transport you to a place of fantasy, ghost stories, ancient legends, odd creatures, alien encounters, and other magical topics. You may even decide to join the conversation. From faraway lands to your own backyard, with a small dash of pixie dust, turn out the lights and open your minds. The journey is about to begin. Hey, 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 everybody. Welcome to California Haunts Radio. Monday, start of a new week, and... uh, New week, new shows. Anyway, my name is Charlotte. I'm going to be your host for the next hour, maybe maybe more. You Sometimes when this gentleman's on, we will go two hours. So I'm just giving you guys a heads up because what he has to say is fascinating. And uh, I want to hear everything. I, I, I read his book, so I'm real excited about it. Anyway, my, my name is Charlotte again, and I am, the ho- I am your host for the next maybe couple hours. And I am also the owner of the California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team based out of Sacramento, California. You can find us at www.californiahaunts.org. The radio show itself is California Haunts Radio, and you can find that at californiahauntsradio.com. Also, if you're watching this from YouTube and uh, you, you like what you see, I would love it if you would subscribe. There's a little ghost down in the right-hand corner that has a magnifying glass and a Sherlock Holmes hat. Please click on that to subscribe. I would really appreciate it. Anyway, uh, tonight's guest is a return guest. He's a friend of ours. His name is Steve, Steve Lubani. And uh, he's written three books, very interesting books, about celebra- certain celebrities that uh, maybe their death wasn't as, as cut and dry as it was supposed to be. So uh, the last time he was on, he talked about Princess Diana and what happened with that death. Tonight, we're talking about Elvis Presley and how he died. And there was something, you know, when I read the book, I can honestly say I'm so relieved to find out that one of the biggest uh, folk tales about the way he died didn't happen. So that makes me excited, <laughs> you know. <laughs> it was kind of embarrassing. But anyway, uh, we're going to get Steve on here in a second. I just want to make an announcement that I will be appearing at the Mystical Minds Conference in October. And I'm going to have more details on that later in the week. But uh I'm going to be bringing all my 20 years experience as a paranormal investigator and talking about paranormal cases and whatnot. And that will be at the Mystical Minds um, Conference in October. Okay. Anyway, without further ado, let's bring Steve in. It's great to be back on your show. How you doing? Good. How are you, sir? Outstanding. You know, I haven't talked to you since the new year. Did you make a new year's resolution? No. Well, just to give, just to get more subscribers and stuff for the show. Man, I'll tell you what, I don't do New Year's resolutions. I have a list of things that will be done. (laughs) (laughs) I don't believe resolutions are a little bit too loose for me. So in this dog-eat-dog world, I had to ask myself if I was going to be a hot dog for another year or just a little wiener. So I (laughs) decided I'm going to be a little wiener for one more year. I got one more book in me, and then I'm done with this craziness. I'm going to go back to a normal life. So that's my resolution. There you go. You know. It gets crazy writing books and stuff. I know I go through that. But I'm in the process of writing two books. And between that and then keeping up my house and then doing this and doing ghost hunting, it's just insane. It devours your life. Yeah. The pace, it, is, the pace, the pace is nuts. I've been doing it for I've been doing it for 12 years, book after book after book. And you know what? I'm tired. <laughs> <laughs> I can believe it. It's it's a lot of work, man. It really is. But um I mean, they take forever. I mean, the Elvis, the Elvis book, I have two books on Elvis, actually, so I have four books, but um, it was 10 years 
writing those two books. It's a gigantic, well, I mean, I didn't write them every day, but I mean, you know, pretty close. Right. And researching and going to interview people and, and, you know, talking to the guy who was at the autopsy and talking to people who were firsthand on the scene. Because, you know, when I dig, I dig, you know, right. I don't, I don't deal with hearsay. So it was a lot. It was a lot of work. And this is the book. This book is the one that pissed everybody off. This I one. I can imagine. It, After reading it, I, I can imagine. It set the world on its ear. Um, it, it got everyone talking. This one put me on the map in a good way and a bad way. This was the flagship of the, of the book series. And, um, you know, people just love the story. And uh, it's these books take a while. You know, it's uh, I'm proud to say with all these years of researching and writing, um, I, I don't need glasses. I drink right out of the bottle, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, after uh, reading this book, I can see the amount of work that you put into it. And, and you know what? It just, it's just fabulous. Thank you. I mean, I, everybody seems to like the book and the research that's in it. Unfortunately, you know, you I didn't like the way it ended. You know, I mean, obviously. Yeah. Physical books are going away, folks. I'm going all digital in about six weeks. So if you want to get your books, your physical books, get them now. I'll autograph them. I'll number them for you. If you wanted to send somebody for, for a gift, do it because they're not going to be around much longer. And for two reasons, it's not my choice doing this. The In the COVID universe that we exist in, the, um, the books... Uh, Shipments aren't coming regularly. I'm having problems getting books, first of all. Second of all, my cost of these books just doubled. Mm -hmm. And I think it's grossly unfair to pass that cost on to everybody else. I'm not going to charge people 30 bucks for a book. I'm not going to do it. That's I'm ridiculous. Not. So they're forcing my hand. I would just as soon um, do physical books for everybody, but I can't. So get your books and get them now. Uh, go to whomurderedbooks.com. And you can uh, you can get the last of the physical books that exist because when they're gone, they're gone. I'm not doing anymore. It's going to be ebook and audiobook from now on. That's it. There you go. There you go. There you go. So let's talk about Elvis a little bit. I mean, like I said, there's there's the story that was released, which is kind of insulting to Elvis when you think about it. Very. Very insulting to Elvis. And very. I was I was very happy to read what you came up with because it it made me feel better because you know. And I went around for all these years thinking that my idol, you know, had died on the toilet. That's what sucks about it. Yeah. And, you know, that <laughs> welcome to fantasy land, you know, I mean, <laughs> it's really he's the most magical corpse I've ever seen. You know, I mean, there were six people who were in on finding the body. They couldn't agree on where the body was found. What color pajamas the guy was wearing. One guy, Joe Esposito, was his road manager. He changed his story on where the body was found um two times in an hour i mean this is the most magical corpse i ever saw in my life you know yeah that's just craziness it's crazy so we'll, let's, we'll let's, just, let's we'll talk about elvis because you start you know you start the book off really nicely so i'll just let you go for it all right well where do we start um let's start from the beginning why he's so important and i'll work into the mob that was running his career and how he pushed back and how he got murdered and how they covered it up. And they're still covering it up. They're still feasting financially off the specter of this incredible human being. And, you know, it's just, I'm the only one out there who's defending this guy that I know of. Everybody else is lying in their pockets and they're all full of crap. 
and I'm not going to be that guy. I'm going to do the right thing. I'm going to defend him. So I would like to think that if Elvis, Princess Diana, and um, FDR, the people, the subjects that I write about, if they could read my books, they'd smile because I'm doing them justice because there is so little justice in this world. So, all right, Elvis. Okay. Elvis grows up in Tupelo, Mississippi, dirt poor. Um, there's uh, He's born in a two-room shack that... His family built. This was long before social services, uh, nothing like we had today. And, uh, and when you were dirt poor in the South, you were dirt poor in the South. And um, the shack was built. And like I said, they live in Tupelo, Mississippi. And it was a side lot from where um, Vernon Presley, Elvis Presley's father, you know, had a little bit of extra land. They built it right there and they built it by hand. And they finished it just before Christmas. And, of course, Elvis was born just after the New Year. So they finished it just in time. Um, the first, He was a twin. The twin was stillborn. I know that's now there's a new conspiracy out there that, you know, he had the twin is still alive and he was doing dates and touring and this and that. And then there was four other brothers. Come on. Um I know people in the federal government, and I actually looked into this because I'd, hey, maybe I'm wrong, you know, and um, these people don't exist. There are no birth certificates. There's been no death certificates. There's no social security numbers. There's no driver's licenses. There's no nothing. These people don't exist. And I know the people who are out there, and they're nice folks, and they're out there pushing this. And um, I think that they're being taken. I think that they genuinely believe this is going on, but I think a lot of these pictures are just photoshopped and someone's leading these people in a merry chase. So Elvis's twin is born first. Elvis's twin, of course, dies. Elvis is the second born and uh, it grows up as an only, obviously, and um, dirt poor. Uh, I mean, they, they're really struggling. And Elvis Presley's father ends up going to jail. Mm -hmm. He was raising a pig. With a couple other people, to <laughs> it takes three people to raise a pig, right? Um, three, two other, two other guys were. Um, <laughs> you, you can't make this up. Um, How many southerners does it take to raise a pig? Yeah. <laughs> I have to reset from that one. All right, really. So his his father and two friends of his, I guess, are raising this pig and they were going to sell the pig to the person that he worked for. And when they, they um, gave him one price and when it came time to sell the pig, he didn't agree to the price. I think it was $15 they were going to get for this pig and he gave him $5. Well, it was his employer, so he was kind of stuck. So the guys were sufficiently pissed to the point where they put a one in front of the five and rewrote the check and cashed it, and all three of them went to jail. Huh. So Elvis's father um, goes to jail over a pig. I mean, you can't make this up. You know, I mean, it's just, <laughs> it's it's unbelievable. I mean, I heard of people being divorced over a pig, but never going to jail over a pig. But he did. Okay, so um, it's just Elvis and his mom, and this is a relationship. This is why they were so tight. Because for a couple of years, through his formative years, it's just Elvis and his mother. And that relationship, the closeness there, lasted all the way until she died. Mm -hmm. This was never the same. So um, eventually, uh, Vernon gets out of jail, and he's fending for his uh, 
he's fending for his his family as best he, he could and but these are tough times you know this is you know you're in you're in the world war ii days and there was not a lot of work around so they worked really menial terrible jobs i mean they picked cotton they did all kinds of things and one of the favorite things that they did was they went to this the church you know they were very involved in their church and this was uh this was a, a black church and Elvis Presley loved the black gospel rhythm and blues sound. This mm -hmm. is where he got this from. He just loved it, you know. And, um, you know, there's this new, you know, woke thing that, you know, Elvis didn't like black people and this and that. I mean, how far from the truth could you be? I mean, it's just, it's just where do people come up with this stuff, you know? Uh, most of his friends in Tupelo, you know, were people of color. That's just the way it was. So. Work dries up. They move to Memphis. They pack up their their pickup and they move to Memphis. You know, it's just like the Beverly Hillbillies, kind of. You know, and they go to Memphis, and things are a little bit better in Memphis. The father finds more work. Uh, they move into um, Lauderdale Courts, which is public housing, because now it's a few years later, and here's some social programs to help poor people that didn't exist a while ago. Okay, so Elvis is. Um, in Humes High School in Memphis, Tennessee, which is, and of course, we're segregated south now, so that's a white high school, okay. right? And Elvis doesn't like, he doesn't fit into this crew cut world. You know, he's hanging out in Beale Street, which is where all the R&B artists are, and most of them are black, and he ends up being friends with these people. So, I mean, he's into that R&B blues thing. He ended up being really good friends with B.B. King. I met B.B. King years ago, and he told me a couple stories about Elvis, and Elvis was just a very respectful, nice young man, according to B.B. King. Uh, so here's Elvis going to school, and he is uh, not fitting into this crew-cut white world, okay? He's got, uh, he's wearing flashy clothes, and he's got the James Dean haircut, and he's got the collar flipped up, and he just is not fitting into this world. And he, he's paying a, a price for this, like you wouldn't believe. I mean, they they are throwing eggs at him and rocks at him. And, you know, I mean, it's just unbelievable what this kid went through. So he, meet, he meets one of the, a couple of people that are going to be his friends through his entire life. Um, and Elvis was not popular. So he hung out with other people who were not popular. Um, Lamar Fike was a 300-pound guy who was also picked on, ended up being one of Elvis's friends his whole life. Um, George Klein, who happened to be Jewish, also was being picked on for many reasons. Mm -hmm. um, Jerry Schilling, I don't believe, but Jerry Schilling was younger, and he lived close to Elvis. Um, the one that really came to his rescue was Red West. Mm -hmm. They were cornering Elvis in the bathroom one time with a pair of scissors, and they were going to cut his hair. And Red West comes in and fights him off. So these are the people, this is the core that forms Elvis Presley throughout his whole life. These people become his Memphis Mafia, so to speak, quote unquote. And these, these people are the friends that he would have and hold and lavish with gifts his entire, his entire life. So the formation of Elvis Presley is starting. All right. This is where his roots come from. Uh, Saunders ends his Sun Records, which is also in Memphis. A really cool place if you ever get a chance to go. Go there. Also go to Graceland and bow to the master because 
before Elvis, before anybody did anything, Elvis Presley did everything. So go bow to the master. Okay. So he, he does cuts a couple of tracks, um, one for his mother. That's all right. Little mama. And he's giving it to her for, for his birthday. And the uh, secretary in there hears him and realizes this is the kid that Sam Phillips has been looking for. Sam Phillips is the owner of Sun Records. Very nice man. He was very good to Elvis. So he brings him in, and they're doing track after track after track, and nothing is working. Because they're trying to get Elvis Presley to sing these cowboy country songs, and it's not working. So they go on break. And Elvis is in there with a couple of guys, and they're just jamming out. And Sam Phillips goes outside and gets a breath of fresh air, and he hears this. And he comes running back, and he goes, that's what I'm looking for. Do, do that. What are you doing? Do more of that. So when Elvis became himself and became original, that's when they got him on record, and this is where he started getting his fame from. So um, they start playing his... Uh, they start playing his music uh, on Memphis radio. And he's a nervous wreck, absolutely nervous wreck. So he goes to the movies, they're playing his records. And it's such a sensation that they kept, he kept getting requests to play this over and over and over again. Okay. So his parents had to go find him in the movie theater and jerk him out of there because they want to interview him on the air. And boy, do I know what that's like. <laughs> So, so he, he goes there and he's talking about, you know, they interview him on the air about this, this cutting this record and this and that. And he happens to mention he's from Hume's high school, which is a white high school. And he does not sound like a white performing artist. So here's all of this controversy around this kid. And of course, you know, his stage performance, he used to jiggle and wiggle and, you know, and he was just taking people by storm and it was just unbelievable, the, the backlash. So they put him on the Louisiana Hayride, which is an, an equally sounding stupid thing. Uh, basically, you know, it wasn't a hayride. It was, you know, they were touring carnivals and fairs and, you know, Elvis was playing little gigs and he's finding his sea legs mm -hmm. and he's perfecting his craft. And uh, it's just like everybody else. You don't start out being great. You have to work your way up, you know. Um, the first book I published had about 340 typos in it. You know, it took me, <laughs> takes a while to get to know what you're doing. And so it was the same thing for him, you know. So he's, we're dealing with 1954, 1955. And, you know, he's just about there. He's just about ready to burst on the scene. And, um, Oh, you got my picture up. You know what? I don't look anything like that anymore. How funny. I really have to get another photo taken. <laughs> That's really funny. So, um, <clears throat> excuse me. So, um, Go ahead. <laughs> Charlotte laugh. while you're laughing, I'm going to take a drink. Okay. Oh, my. This is going to be one of those nights. Oh boy, yeah, I'm I'm a little different, you know. Some people are afraid of heights. I'm afraid of widths, you know. <laughs> so, um, he's just about ready to burst on the scene, and Sam Phillips is managing him, and Sam Phillips is having financial trouble, and he was really good to Elvis. I mean, Sam Phillips and Elvis really clicked. He was a nice guy, you know, and um, he had to sell his contract. He had to get out of debt 
and he didn't he didn't want to sell this kid this kid's contract but he also knew two, two things he took him as far as he could and elvis had more in the tank he knew that and he also knew he had a debts he had debts to pay so 1955 comes now this mysterious um former carnival barker is now hawking music acts uh and his name is colonel tom parker which we'll talk about at length um he's probably one of my least favorite human beings that ever walked on planet earth and i'll explain that why uh, a little bit later as to why so here he is and he's got a great pedigree of handling big acts you know mini pearl hank snow uh roy acuff eddie arnold and he built Eddie Arnold from this country bumpkin into this gigantic star who he deemed the king of country music, just like he called Elvis the king of rock and roll. So all of this is starting to repeat, and he has the contacts to everything that Elvis Presley needs and wants. All right. So, and I'll go into that in a little bit. So Elvis is, the reason why Elvis Presley is so baked in the cake of Americana is a couple of reasons. Um, he's coming of age in America with television. 1955 comes out. We grow up with Elvis Presley on television. You know, portable record players come out. And for the first time, kids had music of their own. You know, prior, and I mean, it's hard for us to understand today. We have all these things with Spotify and, you know, it's hard to it's hard to imagine this, but there was a time when you had one radio in the house, and it was the size of a, a piece of furniture in the front room, or in the living room, or the den, and whatever your parents listened to, you were listening to. Mm -hmm. And if it was how much was that doggy in the window, that's what you were stuck listening to, you know. So finally, for the first time, kids have uh, music of their own, and they can take it with them. They have portable record players now. So the reason why Elvis Presley will never go away was because he, it was just the perfect timing for the launching of this fantastic new star. And um, it's, it's just amazing how, how he just, it, it, the timing couldn't. So here's Elvis Presley taking a rocket ride in 1956 to fame. And he signs with Colonel Tom Parker and he, all of his dreams are coming true, right? Mm -hmm. Kind of. Um, Eddie Arnold, when he, Eddie Arnold was being, he had a contract with Colonel Tom Parker and it didn't end well. Um, they had a 75, 25 arrangement. And I have to tell you this to explain what happened with Elvis later. Okay. Um, Colonel Parker was managing Eddie Arnold. They had a 75, 25 arrangement. Colonel Parker would get 25% and Eddie Arnold would pay for all the expenses which they didn't have a problem with. They agreed to it. They inked the deal, and that's the way it was. Problem. Um, Colonel Parker was selling hats and buttons and T-shirts and other promotional objects behind Eddie Arnold's back, and he wasn't getting a cut of it. Meanwhile, he's paying all the expenses for the Colonel to go peddle this crap, and this doesn't end well. This was a big explosion, and Eddie Arnold almost punched his lights in. Um, so when Eddie Arnold, you know, when he when they break, they split. They have this this business divorce, Eddie Arnold and uh, um, uh, Colonel Tom Parker, 
now Colonel Tom Parker needs the, the next big thing, the next big ride. And here's this kid, Elvis Presley, that everybody's talking about. He gets a hold of Elvis, signs him to a contract, same contract, 75-25. And Eddie Arnold loses his mind and gets a hold of Elvis and gets a hold of Vernon, Elvis's father, and sets him down and says, look, do not sign with this guy. He's this, he's that, he's the other thing. You know, and and he he laid out a litany of of uh, of issues as to why he shouldn't sign with this guy. And they listened, and you know, they winked and blinked about it, and they said, you know, look, you know, thanks for the information, but we already signed with him. And Elvis, you know, he 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 believed him, mm-hmm. you know, but you know, when you put your hand in your pocket and all you feel is your leg, you kind of tend to believe people, listen, you know, telling you you're going to be rich and famous and all this and that, which he ended up being. So this is how this mysterious person, Colonel Tom Parker, came into Elvis Presley's life. Okay. So Colonel Tom Parker, now I have to go into the rabbit hole with this idiot. Okay. Um, He wasn't a colonel. His name wasn't Tom Parker. Um, He was born in the the Netherlands. And there's a fantastic book out if you ever want to learn about Colonel Parker. It's written by Elena Nash, and I cite it in my book, and it's called The Colonel. And I usually don't promote other people's work, but this is worth reading because it's a fantastic book. She has done interviews with this guy, and she laid out everything um, about this guy. That is everything is known is known because of her. So I do not know her, but her book is great. So get the book um, right after you get my book. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a great book. It really is. Elena Nash, the Colonel. Um, so he's born in the Netherlands, and his name is Andreas Van Koo of many siblings. And he is a rambunctious little goofball. And he runs away and he joins the circus. And he he wants to travel in the circus he's fascinated with the circus and he does it so the first job that he gets in the circus and this comes full circle as to how he ends up in america handling acts and so i have to tell you the backstory okay i have to tell you this to tell you that so he's traveling with the circus and the first job he gets is tending and watering the animals and you know taking care of that and he's with them for years he's traveling with these people and he works his way up into being um, kind of a carnival barker, a pitchman, a promoter of the, you know, the circus people who are performing, the jugglers and so forth, and probably, you know, the, the bearded lady, you know. So he's promoting that type of thing. So he's good at promotion. He knows how to pitch. He knows how to bring people in. So he's trying to get to America. And he's, he's not only doing that, but he's working on the docks and he's stashing as much cash as he can so he can get to America. And he's trying to save money for the passage over here. When a little incident happened, um, 1929, there's a woman named um, Anna Vanden Eden. And I want you to remember that because there's going to be a test afterwards. <laughs> I've never written test all set up here. <laughs> no, there's not going to be a test. So... So she ends up murdered. She ends up getting her brain. And it's unsolved because whoever did this, and she was friends with Colonel Parker, along with her husband, 
whoever did this um, sprinkled, sprinkled pepper all over the place. So when the dogs tried to get the scent, it would drive the dogs crazy. And the only someone who had trained dogs and been around dogs would know this in 1929. You wouldn't know this, right? So this is when Colonel Parker or Adrius Van Koo ceased to exist in the Netherlands mm -hmm. and Tom Parker appeared in America. He still weighed on board of a ship, came to America, goes into the army because, of course, at that time, you know, he's on the lamb. And if you're in the United States military, you're escaping prosecution. Smart dude. Okay. So he comes into uh, the military. His family has no idea where they are or where he is. And uh, they're frantic trying to find him. And you know what? They never do. So <laughs> he goes into the army and um, goes AWOL and they catch him and bring him back and put him in solitary confinement. And after they get him out of solitary, he's now has a mental illness. He can't talk right. His uh, speech is slurred and it's in a rush. He's got all kinds of problems. So they give him a dishonorable discharge and they give him, um, a, he's, he's got a mental illness. So he, they determined that he was had psychopathic tendencies. So here's this kind of young man who is now a psychopath and a murderer who's wandering the streets of America, who ends up managing all of these people and works his way up to managing Elvis Presley. And of course, he's been, he's been managing all of these acts, Minnie Pearl and all these, all these credible acts. There's no reason to check his background. And you know what? It'd be impossible to check his background. This uh -huh. is, this is nine, the 1930s. You know, you, you don't have the internet. You don't have social media. You don't know who the hell this guy is. But if you look at his picture now, with a little funny hat and the stupid little tie he's wearing, you can look at him and say, hey, that guy's from the Netherlands. Well, they didn't know that back then, you know. So that's the background on this guy. So he meets Elvis, and he's managing Elvis. And it's, it's a dream come true for Elvis for a while. He's delivering everything that he said he was going to deliver. Elvis Presley's mother hated him on sight. It was the first time Elvis didn't listen to his mother. She said, I don't trust the guy. He's a scam artist. Stay away from him. Well, he should have listened to his mom. He'd still be alive. So Colonel Parker, you have to understand now, he's been at this a while before he meets Elvis. So he's had these other acts, and he's been booking them in Vegas. And you don't play Vegas back then unless the mob likes you and they allow you to play Vegas. Okay. The mob built Vegas, built Vegas and nothing goes there unless they want it. So he's been hobnobbing with some very, very important people in Las Vegas who are in the mob. Uh, one of them is Milton Prell, who was probably the first person in Vegas in 1947. He was part of the Detroit syndicate the Detroit mob, and he, they built the Bingo Club in 1947, which became later became the Sahara. And they were they built that on money that they made on uh, booking money and race wire money. They had to launder it into something. So they were the first people, I think, out there who, who started doing this. You know, Vegas is starting to be built now. It's after World War II. Um, 
good time for expansion. So this is what's going on in Las Vegas. So Milton Prell would go on to uh, buy the Aladdin, and then he went on to buy the Mint, which was more you know, downtown. The Aladdin was different. I don't even know if any of them are standing anymore. The Sahara, I guess, is, but it's not called the Sahara anymore. So another person who came, and Milton Prell and Colonel Tom Parker were just, they were like bookends. You know, you couldn't find one without the other. They just went everywhere together. They ended up being neighbors in Palm Springs. So they really got along well. Um, another one that he was introduced to through, through uh, Milton Powell was a guy named uh, Modalitz. This is a big dude in 1950s, 60s Las Vegas. Um, he was part of the Cleveland Syndicate, and he owned the Stardust and the Desert Inn. And his real job out there, he, his people made Frank Sinatra. So, I mean, these people are dabbling in the entertainment industry with and without Colonel Parker. So he was out there operating these, uh, again, they had liquor running money and they had to put it somewhere and Vegas was the place to do it. So his real job out there was to be a closer ally to Jimmy Hoffa and Meyer Lansky. And all of these people knew Colonel Parker really, really, really well. So it gets to the point where, I mean, it's bliss on tap for Elvis. He's playing here and playing there and, you know, they, um, the mob was into everything back then. Uh, you know, they, they were, they had a chunk of, um, uh, major, major press outlets. So Elvis was getting all kinds of press because Colonel Parker was giving the mob a cut of the money, you know, give them their tribute because they were playing. So it was back and forth, you know, I mean, okay, we'll put your boy in here, but you're going to have to pay us a little on the backside. One hand washes the other. So Colonel Parker knew how to play this game really, really well. So this is one of the reasons why Elvis got so much fame and so much notoriety and so much publicity. Um, they were also, most of the record labels had some variety of mob influence back then. I'm sure it's not like that today, but back then that's what it was. So Elvis is in the good old boys club to the point where um, there was a time where Elvis was in such a velvet jail, he couldn't do anything without them. And Colonel almost lost control of Elvis Presley's management. They almost, he almost got completely taken over by the mob. It was really, it was a scary situation. So, like I said, there was a time when the mob ran ran America, and I think that, to be honest with you, I think they ran it better, you know, than it's run now. Uh, I, I think the mob knew enough not to kill the golden goose. I think whoever's running things now doesn't necessarily care. Um, so Elvis is starting to become boxed in. Uh, he, he goes through... Um, <laughs> he goes into the Army. He's doing a, a film, and he has to go into the Army. And the only way to not get caught in breach of contract was to call in some favors for some people who had the backstage pass, who could get him out of this contract with the movie so he could go into the service. That was a little bomb that was sent by the, by the federal government because Elvis is creating quite a stir in America. He's on television and he's wiggling and jiggling and people are losing their minds with this guy. So they're complaining to the FBI about this guy. 
breaking his records, burning his records, you know, churches are calling him the devil. I mean, it's, I mean, this is, you know, we'd ever seen anything like this before. And this isn't, this is one of the things B.B. King told me. He said, you know, this is such a nice young man. He said, if they ever met the guy, they'd realize it's just a stage act, you know? So they were calling this guy every, Elvis was being called everything but a white guy. So the FBI had to do something. And the best thing that they could come up to do was to was to get this guy into the army and get him out of society for so everything could cool down because they were worried about twofold things they were worried about the uprising in America they also thought somebody was going to kill him mm -hmm. so the uh, the FBI was called in multiple times to protect Elvis from extortion and all kinds of things that were going on bad situation so let's let's get the guy in the army so in order to do that Colonel Parker had to call in a favor to get him out of the contract with a movie deal. Try that today and see if that works. You know, you have to have the backstage pass, which the, which they all had. So Elvis goes into the army and there's enough. Colonel Parker was very smart, very smart. Um, there's an interview out there with one of the people who used to work from him. They said that Colonel Parker could actually carry on five or six different trains of thought at once. The guy was just absolutely, he was genius. He was an evil genius, but a genius nonetheless. So Elvis is in the army and there's enough music on record for two years that they're pumping out. The people don't even know he's missing. So he goes off to, uh, off to Germany. Of course, this is where he meets Priscilla at the ripe old age of, I don't know, 14 or something. Um, what would happen if that happened today? The lawsuit be, would be flying, boy. That wouldn't be very good. Yeah, it'd be a whole different thing today. Um, yeah. Because back then, even Jerry Lee Lewis was taking young brides. Pardon me, I had to drive a drink of water there. Yeah, that that was it would have been career ending. And Colonel Parker didn't know about this. Mm -hmm. Why? Because Colonel Parker couldn't go to Germany. Why? Because he wasn't an American citizen. He couldn't get a passport. Which is why Elvis never toured Europe either. That's exactly right. So yeah. El uh, Colonel Parker is trying to do this remotely. And over there, all hell's breaking loose. You know, you've got Elvis involved with this, this young girl. You've got um, Vernon over there fighting with his wife and doing all kinds of things. And he is on the phone and he's just bursting a gasket. He's like, he gets Vernon on the phone and chews him out and says, you're the one that's supposed to be in charge over there. You're supposed to keep an eye on this. Why is this happening? You need to grow up and do your job. And these two really had it out. So Elvis was in the army and all of this was going on. He comes out of the army and here comes the movie career now. Elvis comes out of the army and he doesn't want to do rock, rock and roll stuff anymore. And Colonel Parker almost has a stroke. You know, he wants to do, you know, uh, all kinds of different music. And Colonel Parker's like, no, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. We got here on rock and roll. We're sticking to rock and roll. So they had to alter the music that he was doing a little bit. And he came out and out of the, out of the army and he did It's Now or Never, you know, the song It's Now or Never, which is a little bit deviation that he was doing. So now here come the, here come the, uh, the mob comes calling again. Now you owe us a favor. Frank Sinatra is on the Timex special, and it's uh, speech, it's uh, featured by Timex, sponsored by Timex, and it's on um, 
It's on television, and it's a complete flop. No one's watching this. So they tapped Colonel Parker on the shoulder, and they said, hey, do you think Elvis, everybody wants to see the clean-cut Elvis out of the service. Do you think we can put him on? Frank Sinatra hates Elvis Presley. <laughs> you know, he, he really, really does. I mean, he said some real horrible things about him. Not later on, but at first, you know. So um, Elvis appears on the Timex special to help out Frank Sinatra, who's backed by the mob as kind of a, a favor. And uh, he's paid well for the performance. And, of course, it goes crazy because everybody wants to see Elvis out of the army and everything. There's a cleaned up, grown up, clean cut Elvis, you know. Now here comes the movies. Everybody wants to, he wants to do a movie now. Colonel Parker's putting him into this movie thing. And um, Elvis thinks it's great. He always wanted to be an actor, a real actor, you know. So he'd done a movie before, obviously. Um, so... They want to do this movie, this GI Blues, and guess who's going to finance it? <laughs> Mo Dallas. Mo Dallas and the mob are financing these movies. Okay. So there's a picture in my book, a lot of pictures in my book. There's a picture in my book that's going to be hard for everybody to find, and it's taken on the backstage of GI Blues. And Elvis Presley is standing there with Mo Dallas, Juliet Prowse, and a couple of the other people who are producing and directing. GI Blues. And it's a very telling photograph because Elvis is right in the middle and everybody's smiling but Elvis. He was the most miserable young man on the planet Earth. He didn't want to do this script. He didn't want to sing these songs. He's he's Colonel Parker's got him by the ear and he's twisting. And that didn't stop until the movie stopped. Um they were cranking out a movie every 30 days. And you think about that for a second, a whole movie in 30 days. And they were just working Elvis to death. Um, it got to the point where Elvis started getting bloody noses and it wouldn't stop. And they were calling the doctors and they're like, why is he getting these bloody noses? And um, Elvis was popping uppers to keep up with the workload. And the doctor just came out and said, you've got this guy's resistance down so far, you're working this guy to death. you got to give this guy a couple days off. He just doesn't have the resistance in his body to stop these bloody noses. And you know, it wasn't from like that. I, I, I knew almost all of the Memphis Mafia members who were all gone now because that's just the way it is. They were all, they lived their lives and they're at the age where they passed on. And illegal drugs weren't around. Um, it was just Elvis's body's way of saying, look, I've had enough. So it got to the point where Colonel Parker had signed agreements for all of these movies. And in order to keep up with the, the time schedule, they had to bring in body doubles. And they found a couple of body doubles that looked a lot like Elvis. And then they had them surgically altered to look like Elvis. So if you're watching fun in Acapulco, you know, obviously Elvis Presley's not diving off the cliffs. You know, I mean, there are these body doubles and they're all around. And I learned this. There was two of them, one named Matt and one named John. And I learned this from Susanna Lee, who was a co-star in Paradise Hawaiian Style. Okay. I ended up being really good friends with Susanna, who died in 2016. She lost a ferocious battle with liver cancer. Um, 
and uh, the stuff that she told me is just unbelievable about old Hollywood and a lot of things that we can't get into here because it would be a five-hour show. But <laughs> she knew that Elvis was murdered. She knew immediately he was murdered. And she's the one who blew the lid off these Matt and John who were these uh, body doubles who looked like him, who moved like him, who were about she blew my mind away when she's told me, I can't believe this. She said, um, there's a picture in the press kit in Paradise and Wine Styles, and you can look this up. It's her with her arms around Elvis, around Elvis's neck, and they're both looking at the camera. And that's not Elvis. Huh. And I'm like, I'm like, what? She said, that's not Elvis. She said, look at the guy closely the picture to show everybody i don't you can look it up it's out there it's part of the part of the promotional you know the press kit she said look at his face she said uh, this guy's face is very usual this guy has jowls his face is a little fatter elvis's face is very triangular this is not elvis and i'm like Susanna, wait, 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 hold on hold the phone here so i go and i get on i get online and i'm looking at this picture and i go you know what that's not elvis and she said, yeah, I didn't meet Elvis until after the first week of filming. So uh, this is where this Elvis is alive thing is coming from. These guys, they were not only body doubles for the movies. Elvis used them a lot to throw the press off. If they knew that he was in a building somewhere, he would send one of these body doubles out in a different direction. And an hour later, he'd leave. So these body doubles were around, and they were used frequently. Um, these are the people these Elvis is Alive people are seeing, these photographs and this and that, because they're approximately the same age. So that answers a lot of the Elvis is Alive thing. I believe me, I wish he was alive. I believe me, I have no idea how much I wish this guy was alive. He's just not. And I'll get to that in a minute. So Susanna told me, she said the first four or five days she didn't even meet elvis he was in the studio laying down the soundtracks and she's doing these shoots with these other people and she said she was horrified to meet elvis because she had just done a movie <clears throat> pardon me with another star and i won't mention his name because i don't want to put my nose in that trough but and she said that they were terrible to her they were very nasty to her so she was so afraid to meet elvis and she met him and it was like, she said, it was like, she said, meeting Elvis was like taking your first drink of champagne. He was just fantastic. You know, he was just really, really kind and nice to be around. So Susanna filled in a lot of these gaps as to, um, you know, these body doubles, how they were shooting these things in 30 days and the scripts are coming in and they're terrible. Not all of them were terrible, but some of them were terrible. And there's this one, and I don't remember the name of the movie. Susanna and Elvis, they were really good friends, and Susanna lived in Memphis. So Elvis had a much easier time talking to women than men. So she was kind of like his confidant. They would talk about things and this and that. If he was on a break between tours, even in the 70s, they'd talk and this and that. Um, she also told me that Elvis was... Um, a telepath, which absolutely blew my mind. She said they could do messages back and forth. 
which I blew my mind. It absolutely blew my mind. They would tell each other to meet at a certain time. And when they both showed up, they were in hysterics. So um, there's a lot about Elvis that a lot of people don't know. So she knows Elvis was murdered. And so this is how I ended up. She found me online, actually. And we had this conversation, lots of conversations up until she died. So these movies are going and going and going. And Elvis hates them. Some of them were good, but most of them weren't. They all made money, which is all Colonel Parker was after. And here's why. The mob is very good at researching people. The mob realized this guy is not an American citizen. This guy's on the lam. So they started to squeeze him. So the more they squeezed Colonel Parker with the blackmail, the more Colonel Parker had to squeeze Elvis. He was the moneymaker. So now all of a sudden, Colonel Parker's working Elvis to death because the money's going elsewhere. So this is a situation that's grossly unfair to Elvis. So here come these movie scripts, and there's I can't I can't mention the guy's name. I, I was told this story and I can't mention his name. Boy, I wish I could, I just can't. Um the movies got so bad he was in the back of a truck singing to a chicken. And Elvis just lost his mind. He said, has it come to this? He said, is this, has it come to this? This is what my career is now? And he just couldn't stand it. So he's in his home in California where they're, where they're filming, and he gets the next movie script. And if you've ever seen a script for a movie, it's thousands of pages. You know? uh -huh. And, of course, Elvis being the main character, you know, he, his part was huge. <laughs> so he gets this new script. And he, he just loses his mind. And he, he's just, I, I know the guy who was in the room, and he told me not to mention his name, so I can't, but this is what he said. Um, Elvis was flipping through the script, and he's so pissed, he's turning red. And he's just furious. And he said, you know, last script i was i was a speedboat racer the script before i was a motorcycle racer now i'm now i'm this type of racer and he said it's the exact same script and he got so pissed he threw the script up in the air and there's <laughs> there's thousands of pages every i don't know who in the hell put it back together there's thousands of pages everywhere and he said i'm not going they can do it without me i'm not doing it first time elvis ever rebelled from colonel parker morning comes there's ready to shoot. There's no Elvis. They've got a problem. Colonel's furious. He's calling. Can't get a hold of Elvis. Elvis isn't answering the phone. Colonel Parker shows up. RCA shows up. A couple representatives from the movie industry show up. And they had this powwow. And I know two people who were in the room. And I can't use their names. I did talk to them about this. And it was told to Elvis very clearly. You're going to do these movies and you're going to fulfill your contract or you're not going to do anything else. And we would be very naive to think that they were threatening his career. So after they chew him out and Elvis sits there like a, um, like a scorned little boy, the big wigs leave and now it's just Colonel Parker, Elvis Presley, and the two other guys in the room. And Colonel Parker says... I mean, hell, this was, this was June or July, I think. And Colonel Parker says, we're going to do this, we're going to do this, we're going to do this. And he said, since I'm doing all of this extra work for you, 
I'm taking it from a seven from a 25-75 split to 50-50. We're equal partners, and I'm gonna backdate it from January from the beginning of the year. Whoa. Almost as though he was punishing this guy. But he's got the mob behind him. What's Elvis gonna do? He's not gonna do anything about it. He could have taken all the money. There's nothing Elvis can do. So Elvis gets to the point where he's got golden handcuffs. You know, yeah, it's a golden ride, but he can't do what he wants. He can't. It was driving him crazy. He couldn't sing what he wanted. He couldn't perform what he wanted. It was all being dictated for him. So at this point, he starts to re recollect what Eddie Arnold told him about what was going to happen. And it's carbon copy. It happened again. So the situation is going on now. Elvis is starting to do the black leather clad comeback special. And Colonel Parker wants it to be a Christmas special. Mm -hmm. Do you imagine this? He wants him in a sweater singing, you know, Harry Cuomo songs, I guess. I don't know. Um, and the producer there, a fellow named Steve Bender, hit it off with Elvis really well. And he said, you don't want to do this. You don't want to do this. He said, uh, your career is over. He said, nobody even knows who you are anymore. This is, we're in the radical 60s. They don't remember you. You can't do this. This will end your career. You'll be a lad. He said the movies were terrible. This will this will absolutely end you. So he took Elvis and he took him outside. And he said, "Why?" He said, "Why do you have all these guys around you anyway?" He said, "You know, so my fans don't bother me or this and that." He said, "I don't think it's going to happen anymore." So he took Elvis outside, and they're walking up and down the street, and nobody knows him anymore. And he finally got Elvis to realize. A colonel's ruining your career, and you can't do a Christmas special. So they did the unplugged version, of course, the 68 comeback special. It was sponsored by Singer, the sewing machine company. And, um, of course, that was a smashing success. So Elvis starts to realize, 1968, 1969, the colonel's losing his punch, and he's outgrowing him. He's also starting to realize that there are members of his inner circle that he brought home from the army that are Colonel Parker's mole. Everything that they say, everything that they talk about is, be, is going back. And Colonel Parker is keeping tabs on everything that he's doing. This isn't going to fly. Not with a fellow like Elvis Presley. So he's, he does his comeback in Vegas. And the first time he played Vegas, it wasn't good. People weren't ready for him. Well, Vegas now is a huge success. He's playing Vegas. But now here come the death threats. People are, you know, through his, his performance contract, he had to play Vegas, the International Hotel, which is now the Las Vegas Hilton. He had to play it for two months a year, two and a half months a year, give or take, depending on the year. And that's where he lived. He had an entire floor him and his guys and his entourage and whoever the hell they brought up there, this is where they were staying, right? So, you know, when you stay there, you get mail. You know, people have to contact you and they know where to mm -hmm. starting to get mailed threats and real threats. And it got to the point where Elvis started going gun crazy. He would perform in Vegas with a gun strapped on his ankle. You know, those bell bottoms uh, hit a multitude of sins. 
he there were there was one threat in particular that you know they were going to shoot him so um there's boy i could go into this for an hour but i won't because i know a lot of firsthand things that were told to me by people in the memphis mafia that the memphis mafia beating elvis privacy's inner circle that i'm not going to have time to go in um get a hold of me on facebook get a hold of me on twitter um i'll tell you the stories i don't have time to do it now um so the death threats are real elvis now there's problems elvis is takes his house and bars go up on graceland now there's armed guards now he's got closed circuit tv cameras and if you look at Graceland during this time, and you look at Michael Corleone's house and the Godfather too. You can't do it. Guards, gates, walls, bars, guns, closed circuit TVs. It, Graceland isn't a house for a rock and roll singer anymore. Now it's a compound. There are big people coming after this guy, and he's starting to suspect they're coming from within the mob. So it gets to the point where. Boy, this guy's got a lot going on. Um, and he realizes that the death threats are real and he's going to be able to have to carry a gun throughout all the states that he's touring in. And um, he goes to see Nixon. And people have done a joke about this thing and they've done movies about this and they've made it into a comedy. This is no damn comedy. Um could you imagine this situation happening today? Here's Elvis Presley. He walks up to the gates, <laughs> gates of the White House, scribbles a note on a pad, hands it to a guard, and says, I want to see the president. And he does it. Elvis Presley walks into the White House wearing 245s. Could you imagine this situation today? And he tells Richard Nixon, look, I'm fed up with the hippie culture. I'm fed up with the protests. I'm fed up with the long hair. I'm fed up with the street drugs. And I want to help. And he wants a federal narcotics badge, which he gets. And he said, look, I'll be happy to help you out and, and cl help clean the country up, but it's got to be kept quiet. And he said, I need this, this credential because I want to carry guns in all the states because I'm flying all around the states and I'm starting to get death threats. So he gets the, um, again, this is all in the book. Somebody, there was a mole in the White House who blew the story out, I think, to the Washington Post. And it was on the front page of the Washington Post that Presley gets a narcotics badge. And it wasn't supposed to be out there. And when that happened, what Elvis was trying to do was expose to the mob and everybody else. Everybody knew he was an ear. Everybody. Mm -hmm. And that was that was the beginning of the end. Um so what they wanted Elvis to do, so Elvis gets his credential and he goes back to play Vegas for two months. And all of a sudden, all these busts are happening through the entertainment world and nobody can figure out how this is happening. Um, and if you know, I mean, the movie, the movie Casino is kind of, a, you know, it's fictitious. It's based on a true story, but it's not the whole true story. Mm -hmm. But what is true about it is that the mob ran everything out there during this time and they had everything bugged. They had the hotel rooms bugged. They had all the, everything was bugged. The mob, they, they knew everything that was going on back then. So here's Elvis reporting back 
of what he's doing for Nixon. And so Elvis, Nixon's telling him, um, he wants him to step it up. He said, you're doing a good job. I want you to step it up. He said, can you hide FBI agents in your entourage, in your band, or in your, is roadies or backup singers or something? So there were two FBI agents that were held in Elvis Presley's band as cover so they could investigate the mob. All of this is caught up on wiretap. Guess by who? By the mob. <laughs> so all of this, this, this was all exposed. And Elvis died of very mysterious causes shortly before he was supposed to turn state's evidence against the mob into, in a big sting. Um, everything else that they've told you is just a cover story to throw people off the scent, just like the black, the black pepper that they put around so the dogs couldn't sniff it out, you know? There's something else that's happening here. Uh, 1976, Elvis Presley is almost bankrupt um, for two reasons. He has no tax shelters, so the money that he's taking in is going out the back door. He's the number one taxpayer in the, in the state of Tennessee at this time. Second reason is 1973, Priscilla now has reopened the divorce. We don't even know how this is legal, but it was. And she wants a bigger chunk. Elvis is really hurting for money in 73. So Colonel Parker um, makes an arrangement with RCA that was grossly unfair to Elvis. And he talks Elvis into selling all of his music rights and all of his royalties and everything to RCA for a lump sum. Elvis is mid to late 30s at this point. It's the worst advice anybody could ever give him. <laughs> you know, so I forgot what the dollar amount was, but the colonel got his cut, Priscilla got his cut, Elvis got a cut, and after taxes, he got virtually nothing. So Elvis is in quite financial straits here in 73. And in 73, before we even get to the murder and the mob and all that, and the people in the mob who he uh, rubbed the wrong way, Right after Aloha from Hawaii, Elvis is on stage in Vegas, and the death threats are getting severe. Now four people run, uh, rush the stage in Vegas, four guys. And behind the curtain is all of Elvis's backstage people, the security people, this, that, the people who travel with him, the people who basically live in the same floor with him. Four guys rush the stage. They take three of them out because they're all black belts. And they're all carrying guns. Elvis went martial arts crazy. Elvis is a black belt. And he started to do this when he started to realize, you know, the, the threats are serious, you know. So these guys rush the stage. The guys take out three of them. Elvis is way over to the left-hand side of the stage, and he's kissing a girl or doing some damn thing. He doesn't see this guy who's coming after him. He sees him. Somebody calls to him or points to him. This guy walks up to Elvis, and he's going to try and take him out, and Elvis foot sweeps him, shows him why he's a black belt. I don't think anybody knew at that point that he was. Starting to get very hairy around Elvis, who is now death threats are piling up. He's trying to, uh, he's almost going bankrupt. Bad time. 
So his father takes over his finances. His father is trying to make Elvis Presley solvent. And at this time, a lot of changes are happening in Elvis's life. They had to let three bodyguards go. Um, Red West, Sonny West, and Dave Hebler. I knew the first two. I never met Dave Hebler. I know he's out there. He's got a book out. I, I would love to talk to this guy someday. Maybe I will. I'm sure he's a, I'm sure he's a hell of a nice guy. Um, Dave, one of these days we'll talk, I promise. So, um, they, they get let go and they get pissed and they write a book, which, which was not necessarily flattering to all of us. Um, and it got so, so bad. It came to the point where Vernon was telling the guys don't drink the bottled water because it's too expensive. Meanwhile, there's a plane. Elvis always had the bigger and better thing, you know? Mm -hmm. So his first plane, the Hound Dog 2, was a littler plane. Of course, now he's got the, the Lisa Marie, which is a huge plane. So there's no reason to have the little plane anymore. He's not using it. It's a $900,000 plane, and it's dry docked, and they're paying to keep this thing dry docked. So Vernon says, um, well, look, let's get this thing sold off so we can we can put the money in the kitty, and we'll you know, we'll keep you solvent. So he advertises it for sale and who, <laughs> you can't write, you can't make this up. Who contacts him is somebody who's involved in an international theft ring going around all the countries, stealing things from everybody. And this is what they told Vernon. Um, you know, Vernon was a nice guy. He was not highly educated. He was not a very sophisticated guy mm -hmm. um, as far as education. Um, he was a nice guy, and he really was trying to do the best thing he could for Elvis. But this this just was, uh, this backfired a tremendous amount. What they tell him is, look, we'll buy the plane, but it needs to be brought up to the regulations, the flight regulations. So you take the plane. You remortgage the plane. You borrow more money against the plane. I'll take the plane and I'll give you back payments every month. And in the end, you'll get what you're asking for the plane plus this much more. Well, Vernon says, great, let's do it. So they shake hands. The guy takes the plane and guess what? No money comes in. One month, two months, six months, no money's coming in. Now they have to get the FBI involved to track down the plane. Problem is, this guy is also in the mob, but a different mob. So here's Elvis stuck between the mob and the FBI, not one time, two times. And this is not going to end well. So all of this is how Elvis got between the mob and the FBI. And there's no way this is going to connect. I mean, you put this thing in a jar and shake it up, and this has just got to explode. And, um, of course it did. Um, it, it's just, it's amazing how the stage was set and Kurt got to the point where Colonel Parker and Elvis were at each other's throats so bad. They, um, Elvis started canceling tours. Um, he started to have health problems. There were health problems Elvis had for sure. You can't deny it. His blood sugar was too high. His, he had uh, high blood pressure. Um, he started to have problems with his eyes. There were there were problems. He was started. He was being worked to death. I mean, he had exhaustion problems. So he started canceling dates, and because of that, he wasn't drawing like he was. 
previously. Colonel Parker got furious and he tried to sell his contract. And again, this is covered in my book. Um, there was a there was a, an article that was written in the Nashville Banner, which is a newspaper, and the article's in my book. Colonel Parker's trying to sell Elvis's contract. And Elvis is actually standing in the way of a windfall of products that can be made. Millions and millions of dollars can be made off his image. His image doesn't tire. His image doesn't cancel dates. Elvis does. So Elvis's star power is huge. The only thing standing in the way of Elvis making all kinds of money for the colonel and other people is Elvis. He's their obstacle. So Colonel Parker, you know, when Elvis died, Colonel Parker was probably the most degenerate gambler anybody would ever seen. He had... $32 million that was owed to Vegas when Elvis died. Um, the more they squeezed him, the more he had to squeeze Elvis. When Elvis died, well, let's be clear. When Elvis was murdered, um, Elvis had a million dollars in the bank, and that's it. So now you think about this, and I'll come up to the. I'm setting the stage so we can talk about the murder and everything okay elvis dies with a million dollars in the bank now the recording industry artists of america the riaa they track everybody's record sales including elvis's they started a couple years after elvis's biggest years they determined that elvis sold six billion records with a b now if elvis got 25 cents off every one of those records where the hell's all the money? Mm -hmm. Now, I know that Elvis was very generous, uh, gave a guy I know a house, gave away a bunch of Cadillacs and cars and motorcycles. And you talk about generous. I mean, the man invented the word. There's, I mean, when he died, um, and I'll come back to my point, when he died, the letters started coming in from families in Graceland, 32 or 33 families in and around Graceland that were needy families that Elvis Presley was supporting that he didn't tell anybody he was supporting. There was one, there was one instance where there was a, there was a woman who had no legs. She had, uh, she was born that way. And there was a article in the newspaper in the Memphis newspaper and uh, Elvis and a couple of his guys were sitting around the breakfast table. And one of his guys is reading this story. And he gives this to Elvis, and he said, Elvis, you need to read this. So Elvis reads it, and he's reading the story about this woman who's a grandmother who was born without legs, who is running around her house, um, you know, with this wooden mechanism that she can get around. And Elvis says, go find out, find, call and find out where she lives. What Elvis does is he goes out and he buys one of the most sophisticated wheelchairs, mechanical, you know, electric wheelchairs on the planet. And he and Sonny West and Priscilla and a couple other people, I believe, were there. They went and hand-delivered it to her, and he's showing her how this thing works. You know, I understand the guy was generous. How do you spend a billion dollars? Mm -hmm. It's impossible. There's a long-standing blackmail somewhere. This all of this is going on behind the scenes, and no one knows about it. So, 
August 16th, 1977 comes around, and you know the date. This is the day Elvis died. Elvis is um, getting ready to fly out to start his new tour in Portland, Maine. And the circus has these people called the 24-hour um, group or 24-hour men, as the case may be. And these people go 24 hours ahead of the, the show, and they set everything up. The merchandising, the hotel rooms, they set everything up. Well, they were gone. Graceland's an empty hall. There's two guys in, in Graceland. Marty, Le uh, I'm sorry, um, Joe Esposito, who was Elvis's road manager, and a man named Al Strada, who was in charge of Elvis's wardrobe. That's basically it. I mean, there was, I think Dick Grob was there, who was Elvis's chief of security, who also knew that he was murdered, wrote the book, The Elvis Conspiracy. I did not know him. He died last year, which is a shame. Uh, we had mutual friends. I really feel bad. I didn't get a chance to, to uh, speak with him. He knew an awful lot about what happened that day. So these people are there. They get the call. Elvis's girlfriend, Ginger Alden, finds Elvis on the bathroom floor. Calls down to, um, there's, a, there's a lot of phones in Graceland. There's a phone in the kitchen that called down. When Elvis wanted something, he would call down and the maid or somebody would pick it up. So she's calling down and she's frantic. She thinks Elvis fainted. Mar, uh, Joe and, uh, and Al Strada run up there and they realize this guy isn't fainted. This guy left the building hours ago. So now... They're starting to ring the alarm buzzer, so to speak. You know, wait, we've got a problem here. So Joe Esposito is trying to do mouth to mouth, and he's trying to do this and trying to do that. And the thing about Joe Esposito is that he always tells you the truth, but he's told the truth about 15 different ways. And every time he tells the truth, it has a different ending. Um, it, it's just amazing throughout the years how this story has morphed. Uh, my favorite part of the story that he told was, that he gave uh, Elvis mouth-to-mouth -mouth at a time when Elvis's teeth were clenched solid and you couldn't do that. My second favorite part of the story is when he picked up the um, uh, telephone next to the commode and called 911 at a time in Memphis when 911 didn't exist. <laughs> so it's very interesting when you're a researcher what you dig up. So what you can believe is that Joe called um, Dr. Nicopolis, who was Elvis Presley's doctor. Then after he calls Dr. Nick, of course, he calls the EMTs. So the EMTs show up, Ulysses Jones and Charles Crosby, and they have no idea who this is because this corpse is not in good shape. Um, they have no idea really who this who this guy is. He's a little bloated. He's a little blue-black. They have no idea this is Elvis Presley. And they're horrified when they find out that it's Elvis Presley. Put him on the stretcher. Take him down the front stairs. And they take him out the front doors of Graceland. A lot of people don't realize when you walk in the front door of Graceland, you walk four feet in and you look straight up. That's where Elvis died. Right there on, you know, on the upstairs that would be the location of where he was found. Um, so they pile the body into, into the ambulance. 
And here comes Dr. Nicopolis, uh, who was called, who's showing up, hops in the ambulance, and he's looking at Elvis, and he's in total dis... He can't believe what he's seeing. Elvis just had two head-to-toe physicals, one for Lloyd's of London and one for his private insurance company. And he passed both of them with ease. They'd done... You know, they'd done, he was on the exercise bike. They'd done EKGs. They did everything. They couldn't figure out what, he can't believe what he's seeing. So he's working on this corpse, basically, the entire way to Baptist Memorial Hospital, which has now been imploded, which is not the closest hospital. They took him to back to Baptist Memorial, which kind of breaks protocol. You're supposed to take him to the closest per, to the closest location, but they go to Baptist Memorial. Why? Because they have all of Elvis's prior medical records, and they know that they can cover things up there. So they're on the way, and you don't have cell phones in these days. Mm -hmm. This is 77. I mean, there was three cell phones in America, and Elvis Presley had one of them, believe it or not. You know, and it was the size of, you know, it looked like <laughs> a microwave oven. You know, I mean, the thing was gigantic. So when they get, there's no way to advance notice the, the hospital of what's going on. So they show up and they go into one of the, the triage rooms and they get on, the, on the, the intercom and they start calling for the Harvey team. Well, the Harvey team, I don't know why they call it the Harvey team, but they do. This is the, um, they're calling the emergency response team in the hospital who deals with just this sort of thing. Well, who's on the Harvey team is one of Elvis's nurses, uh, um, Marion Cock. Marion Cock was just hanging out with Elvis the day before, keeping him company, and she lived right adjacent to Graceland. And she was really good friends with Elvis. I mean, he bought them cars, and you know, she, I mean, it was just amazing. So here she is, she gets called in, and she's looking at this, and she can't believe what she's seeing. How can this possibly be? So they start working on these on him and, you know, they started to realize one of the people even said in there, why are we working on this corpse? And they do all kinds of things to try and save his, his teeth up. They smash his front teeth out to get a tube down to see if they could get some oxygen in there. And finally, Dr. Nicopolis and Marion Cock have a little discussion and they say, all right, that's it. That's it. This boy's gone. Elvis has left the building. Now is where it gets weird. Do we have to take a break or can we go straight through? We can go straight through if you want. It's only a few. Okay. Yeah. Let's rock and roll. So okay. here's where things get really strange. Dr. France, um, Jerry Francisco dispatches his, well, before even that happens, they're interviewing. There's a television crew now because now people in Memphis know what's going on. Television crew is in Baptist Memorial Hospital and they're interviewing people who were in the ambulance of what's going on. Joe Esposito tells the camera that he found Elvis dead in bed. Hmm. That's a little strange. So all of these interviews are going on and none of them line up. You almost wonder if they're seeing different bodies. And what's going on is that Colonel Parker is telling people what to say and what not to say. Mm -hmm. So um, the coroner, of course, was called, and you know they got the um, 
Jerry Francisco, who was the medical examiner involved, uh, the same medical examiner who happened to botch Martin Luther King's autopsy nine years earlier, he had that body so carved up, there was no way to determine which way the bullet was coming in from, what the bullet trajectory was. Well, now he's going to botch Elvis Presley's autopsy. Why? I'm sure I have no idea. So he dispatches Dan Warlick, his investigator, to the death scene. I ended up being really good friends with Dan Warlick. Dan died a little while ago. Um, Dan never believed that Elvis Presley was murdered until two weeks before he died. Once he read the book, he finally got it, that there was more going on than what was on the table that he saw. So he shows up with a couple of other people, um, Lieutenant McCochran, um, the assistant district attorney, Jerry Stauffer, and a couple of other officers. And on the way up, they see the EMTs coming down. They went back to pick up, you know, their, the instruments and things that they had left behind that they... And the EMTs are realizing this entire death scene has been cleaned up because they saw signs of a struggle. They they left their equipment in the middle of the room. It is now neatly tucked away in the corner. Everything's cleaned up. So they're coming down the stairs. At the same time, Dan Warlick and his crew are going up the stairs. They know they're looking for evidence, and they know they're not going to find anything. Mm -hmm. So they tell them, on the stairs, uh, we've got a problem here. This entire death scene has been sanitized, which is a little strange because Elvis Presley flew around the entire country um, in different states and this and that, um, doing you know concerts and so forth, and his security people could only do so much. So he was constantly relying on, constantly relying on, uh, the sheriffs and the police and, and so forth to uh, do crowd control and so forth. And they get a big, Elvis met all of them. He, Elvis loved law enforcement. And they, of course, they got a big kick out of meeting Elvis. And they used to give him badges and so forth. So Elvis knew all the Shelby County um, sheriff and the sheriff deputies. He knew all of the police in Memphis. They're the people who had the death scene locked down. And now all of a sudden the death scene sanitized? So here comes the head scratching. Who sanitized the death scene? Why? And why is no nobody can figure out who gave the order? Hmm. So here comes Dan Warlick up the stairs. He's looking for answers, and he ain't going to find any. So the first thing they do is they walk into, and in my book, there's a, a floor plan of how everything was laid out. I know it's going to be hard to follow on this thing. Um, again the physical books I have are limited. And when they're gone, they're gone. Pick one up, go to whomurderedbooks.com. I think I've got it set up where if you buy one or two of them, you get some for 25% off. I'm blowing out the physical books. Get them now because when they're gone, they're gone. You can see the map of the, of the layout, and this will make total sense to you then. So the first thing they do is they walk into his office, Elvis's office, which is a ray of stuffed animals that people have sent him, you know, teddy bears and um, machine guns and you know, all kinds of hardware that is in there. I mean, Elvis loved guns, of course. Um, and they see on the desk a syringe. Right in plain sight. But it was not the syringe that we would find in a doctor's office. 
when I talked to Dan Warlick uh, many times, um, he actually showed me what one of these things would look like. Um, it, it didn't have a needle in it. It was like a cartridge. So you would put the, uh, the cartridge in there, which would have the needle. And it was almost like a little mini caulking gun, if you can think about it that way, you know. So here's this thing with no needle and no cartridge in it. And it's just, it's just sitting there in plain sight. So they're on sensory overload. What the hell is going on here? We've got stuffed teddy bears. We've got machine guns. We've got a, a syringe here. You know, so here they are, and they're struggling to process all of this that's going on. And um, they turn to the right, and they walk into Elvis's bedroom. And there's this gigantic bed. Elvis's bed was eight feet wide. Wow. And um, I have no idea why. Don't ask. <laughs> Big bed. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if he was, I don't know, sleeping next to a car. I have no idea what the hell he needed an eight feet bed, but hey, it's your imagination run wild, right? So they're walking towards, and they see these monitors, these closed circuit TV monitors. He can watch everything around Graceland from right from there, you know? So they're walking towards the foot of the bed, and the windows are all blacked out, and they'll the place had been soundproofed. Elvis Presley was a terrible insomniac. And like with, like most stars, you know, he slept all day and he was up all night and he had to soundproof everything. And he had to black out the windows to make, make it work for him for his schedule. So what a great place for a murder that's soundproofed. Right. Uh -huh. So, they walk towards this armoire, and right on the armoire, here's another knee, here's another syringe. Dan is uh, he was telling me he, he didn't know what the hell to do. You know, I mean, he said this is Elvis Presley. What he has in the back of his mind is don't touch anything, don't ask too many questions. This is the biggest star in the world. And it's hard for people today to go back and understand how big Elvis Presley was at a time when there was no fax machines, no internet, about three television channels. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I mean, there are people who didn't even, who were living in grass huts, who didn't even have running water, had a little picture of Elvis in their grass hut. You know, I mean, it's just insane. Biggest star in the world. Dan Warlick is saying, I have to answer for what I do. Don't touch anything. So they're looking at each other and they're looking at this evidence and they're, they're just, they don't know what to do turns to his right again now they're walking into elvis's bathroom slash reading lounge this was elvis's inner sanctum when elvis this it's almost like superman with his fortress of solitude you know when elvis wanted to be alone this is where he went and nobody was invited in nobody went there unless they were invited I mean, not even the people who worked there. You would call up there to get Elvis. Elvis loved to read, and this is where he'd read. He had a little place set aside next to his wardrobe area behind the shower where he would read. He had a um, um, a barber's chair set up in there where he would relax and he could read in there. So they walk in, and... You know, they're they're struck. And this is where Dan finally gets it. Hits him like a bolt of lightning. Oh, my God, everything's been cleaned up. And he starts to lose it. 
He's so frustrated because he knows now there's no way I can ever do any sort of a great investigation on this. I can't give any information because there's none. Everything's been cleaned up. So now he's starting to interview the people. Mm -hmm. Where was he found? What was the circumstances? This, that, and the other thing. He interviews Joe Esposito. Again, who points and says the body was found here, which was at the uh, on the floor in front of the toilet. Mm -hmm. And he says, are you sure where the body was found? Because 45 minutes earlier, he just told the television camera he found him dead in bed. Right. So stories are already starting to change. So Dan Warwick was 6'2 or 6'3. I recall properly, uh, about an inch taller than I was, uh, or I am, he was, um, and he laid down on the shag carpeting and put his feet against the toilet and he stretched himself out to find where the, the body would have been, would have laid. Mm -hmm. It was almost the wet spot in the carpeting where he had regurgitated was almost seven feet away from the toilet. Elvis was never on the toilet, ever. So he went over and he sniffed because he wanted to cut a carpet fiber to have them examined. That had even been sanitized. It smelled of cleanser. So there's a great effort here to cover up some truth that no one knows about. So he's looking around and he sees there's not even a baby aspirin in this place. You know, he sees some aerosol cans and so forth who have been knocked over on the, uh, on the bathroom counter. And he sees a black leather doctor's bag with many compartments in it. And it was Dr. Nick's bag. Mm -hmm. um, nothing in it. Nothing. So they all kind of look around and they take a few pictures and they take a few sketches and write down a couple things and they leave the hell else he could do everything's been cleaned up right mm -hmm. so he goes back and he tells his boss he being dan warlick and he tells jerry francisco what's going on and he's trying to tell him we've got some problems here jerry couldn't be any 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 less uh disinterested so he just kind of shrugged it off don't worry about it didn't want to hear it, didn't want to hear it. He said, do you want to join the autopsy? And he said, yeah, sure. So he slinks himself into a, a white gown. And now there's a, numerous doctors in there around Elvis. And they've all been compiled because they specialize in something. Uh, Dan Warlick starts to examine the body with a magnifying glass. Now he knows he fussed us syringes. He's looking for needle marks. Can't find any. He told me he looked over every inch of Elvis Presley's body. There was not one needle mark, not one. Hmm. So he remembers saying, oh, what a great way to plant a red herring to drive an investigator's mind crazy, right? Right. You know. Pardon me, we're going to grab a drink of water. So the autopsy starting. And Dan Warlick remembers them saying, we think he OD'd. They have no evidence to, to support this fact. So he starts to dissect his body. And the first thing he does 
is dissect his vocal cords, his larynx. He's looking for signs of uh, anaphylaxis shock or anaphylaxis. And he takes this organ out. And he starts to realize he gets grasped by the fact that this is, you know, I mean, this this voice box has brought joy to millions and millions of people. And here I am with this thing in my hand. And it was just, you know, I mean, Dan said he was moved almost to tears by this. It was really, it was really hard for him to talk about, even years later. And he's looking at this and he doesn't see any signs of swelling, none, nothing. So, you know, there's no sign of anaphylaxis. There's no sign of, uh, of anything here, really. So then they take blood samples and urine samples. They're going to do toxicology. So they take, autopsy hasn't even started yet. Mm -hmm. They take blood and urine samples and they send them off to um, University of Tennessee and a neighboring hospital. And I can't, you'll have to forgive me. It's named in the book. I can't remember the name of the, uh, of the other hospital. Baptist Memorial at that time did not have the, uh, the facilities to do what they were looking for as a toxicology report. So they dispatch these samples off and they're trying to find what killed Elvis. Meanwhile, the autopsy is starting and Dr. Francisco says he's going to have the cause of death. I think at six o'clock that night, mm -hmm. which is incredible really. When you stop and think about uh, Dr. Noguchi and Marilyn Monroe's autopsy took 11 days to come back with his cause of death. You know, here we have this. This guy is going to come out with it in hours. And um, <laughs> the whole thing is just a comedy of errors from the from the, the sanitized death scene that nobody gave the autopsy to, to this chucklehead who wants to give the cause of death in a few hours. So they're starting to take apart Elvis Presley's. God, this is terrible to talk about. They're starting to cut apart Elvis Presley's body, right? Right. And Dan Warlick is taking out his vital organs, and he's putting them on a cork board, and he's handing the cork board to the other people. And they said that Elvis had large organs. Everything was oversized. Um, his heart, his liver, everything. Mm -hmm. And um, what they were doing... Uh, they were dissecting each organ and slicing it in uh, 16th of an inch. Every, they had an instrument that did this. They sliced it every 16th of an inch. Hmm. And they would, they would put them on a slide, and they would hand them to a man named Noel, Noel Florendo, whose uh, specialty was the, I think it was the electron microscope. He was looking at them under a certain microscope, and I can't remember what the name of it was, but... And they were looking for blockages or clotting or blood clots or anything, anything to figure out what this guy is doing on this table. So hours are going by and they don't have anything yet. So the toxicology reports come in and... Um, there are four levels in the toxicology report. There are trace, therapeutic, toxic, and lethal. Well, of course, we know what a trace is. Uh, therapeutic would be what a doctor would prescribe for you. And toxic, of course, would make you sick. And we all know what lethal means. Mm -hmm. Elvis Presley, there were, I don't know, nothing out of the ordinary. There was no codeine or anything in his body. 
and they found drugs at between the trace and therapeutic levels, which is where they should be, and they were things that he was prescribed. Which makes sense, and I'll tell you why it makes sense. Elvis never had control of his drugs. There was a nurse on the premises who Dr. Nicopolis um, had given the drugs to, and they were being dispatched to Elvis. It's not like Elvis had a bunch of drugs kicking around. And this is another thing they said that he, he did suicide and he intentionally OD'd. And boy, I'll tell you what, this, this, is, this story is really, really unbelievable. So they're not finding anything really that they still can't figure out why this guy's dead. They're really having problems with it. So here comes the bewitching hour, right? Jerry Francisco is going to go before the waiting world and all the television cameras and tell them what Elvis Presley died or how he died without one fingerprint coming back from Elvis or even the toxicology reports being looked at yet. Jerry Francisco looks the camera square in the face and tells everybody that Elvis Presley died of cardiac arrhythmia. Impossible for a coroner to determine an irregular heartbeat. Because in order to determine a regular heartbeat, the heart has to be beating. Mm -hmm. A coroner doesn't find a beating heart. He's called in after the heart's already stopped. So his what he said, you know, I mean, at this point, you wouldn't be surprised if a cartoon bunny popped out of this guy's mouth, okay? So what he said, you might as well take right out of the annals of history and put right next to Grimm's fairy tales. I mean, this is just, it's the stupidest thing this guy ever could have said, but he was trying to get people to swallow this and just go away. Mm -hmm. And it worked for about 24 hours and then all kinds of problems happened. Um, it came back to bite him hard because now people wanted more and more evidence and they didn't believe it. So they still can't figure out what caused this guy's death. So now they take tissue samples of his organs and they rush them off to bioscience laboratories in California, which is at that time the most advanced laboratory in America. And they do this barrage of tests and so forth. And they came back with, uh, they found codeine at 11 times the lethal level. And they came out with this, this litany of drugs that would have killed a herd of cattle, you know. Mm -hmm. You know, we have a problem here. Elvis Presley's allergic to codeine. Elvis Presley almost died in 1968 when they did dental work on him and they gave him codeine. He went into anaphylaxic shock. His throat started to swell closed. He started to itch. And if he wasn't, his doctor traveled with him, Dr. Nicopoulos, who was actually a very nice man. Um, he, he bore the brunt of a lot of things and some things he didn't. He really cared for Elvis, I'll tell you that. If Dr. Nicopolis wasn't on his toes, Elvis would have died in 1968 by accident because of the effect of codeine. So we have a problem here. If there's no, if we've already looked at, there's no sign of anaphylaxis in the body. How can it show up at 11 times the lethal level in one of only three toxicology reports? If it's not in the body, it can't be in the toxicology report. Mm -hmm. So here's where the plot really thickens. Nobody knows what the hell they're talking about. Who, wh where are these people coming up with this? And here's the invisible hand again. This is the mob factor. 
They're trying to put this out there because remember, at this time, they control most of the world's media. They're trying to put this out there to cover the tracks of what really happened. So they have a real problem trying to backtrack this. Dan Warlick, uh, who I still can't believe is gone. Um, what a nice man. Uh, I learned so much information from talking to this guy. He finishes the autopsy. He goes home for the night. <clears throat> Excuse me. And he turns on the news and he's furious at what he's hearing because he knows what other people don't know is that everything that they're being told is a lie. <laughs> he leaves his photographs. He leaves all of his notepad and everything in the, in the sight, seat of his car. Wakes up in the morning, gets ready to go in his car to go back to work. His car's been burglarized. The only thing that's missing from his car are the pictures and the sketches and the notes of Graceland. Of course they are. Gone. We have an active cover-up going on here. So I have in the book how Elvis was actually murdered and right. why they couldn't find the, the, the cause of death. Um, it's, <laughs> it's really... It's really something, which brings me to the Elvis is alive people. You know, a long, long time, <clears throat> excuse me. And I don't make fun of these people. And there's a reason, and I don't want you guys to make fun of them either, but because they are finding evidence to suggest Elvis Presley's alive. Mm -hmm. What they don't understand is they, they're not seeing the whole body of evidence that I've seen. They're not understanding the um, the mob connection. They're not understanding the rest of it. They're finding evidence that has been planted there for them to find. Because <laughs> the more time they spend looking for a live Elvis, the left time, less time we spend trying to solve this murder and bring whoever did it to justice. I think they still might be alive. And that's what keeps me up at night. Mm -hmm. Somebody murdered this guy, and they got away with it. They got away with it. This is why they won't don't want you upstairs at Graceland. They know it's a crime scene, and it's still an open case. It's a cold case. They don't want people walking through a cold case, you know, a crime scene. They're still trying to solve this. A few people are. So... The codeine farce, you have a sanitized death scene, you have all of this, you know, there's Elvis is alive people, you know, I mean, there's nothing that Elvis Presley loved on this earth more than Lisa Marie. Mm -hmm. Look at this, she's been through hell, look at what this woman's been through. Do you think if Elvis Presley was on this planet, that he would stand back and let her suffer like this and not come to her rescue? Not happening. Um... <laughs> Elvis would never let this happen. Um, it's just, it's amazing. I can't do all of the book justice. I can give you the quick overview of what's going on in the book. All of your questions will be answered in the book. It's hell of a book. Here's one the thing, right. One thing I think we should touch on too is that with the court, with the court, with, with the guy saying that Elvis had died from a heart issue, Elvis's tongue was stuck out when they went in the room to, to find him. <clears throat> And yeah, that's, that's exactly that's, true. And, and, and that's indicative of another way of dying. Yeah, absolutely. 
Um, absolutely right. I mean, it didn't, it was just, it was not, <laughs> it was not an OD. He didn't have heart problems. And then there was just, I can't go into all of it, right? but right. you're absolutely right. And I would, I don't care. I mean, I want the information out. I mean, sure. if I sell a book, that would be cool. If not cool, I don't care. I've sold enough books. It's not what I'm out about. I want people to know the information because I want this little bastard caught. All right. I really want to catch him. Let's just say, guys, I'll tell you this much. It was it, it was a form of strangulation, but it's not what you think it was. It's not the kind of strangulation you think. It's a wild factor. For sure. Yeah. I mean, the book doesn't end the way you the way you would think. And you know what? I thought I thought I was the only one that knew Elvis was murdered. You yeah. know, and I finally figured started out just as like bedtime reading because I was always an Elvis fan and I never believed what they said, you know. Mm-hmm. And I just figured, well, I'm going to dig into this a little bit and read a couple of books on it. And then the next thing I know, I'm interviewing people who were at the autopsy and we're talking about the toxicology report. And I actually saw some pictures that I don't think I should have seen, which is quite bothersome. You can't unsee what you've seen. No. Right. I, I really shouldn't have done that. If I had that to do over again, I wouldn't. But um, Vernon Presley, Elvis's father, first words out of his mouth on the death scene, oh, my God, they've murdered my son. Vernon Presley knew Elvis Presley was murdered, and he hired two private investigators to find out who it was, how it happened, and bring him to justice. Problem was... Elvis died in 77. Vernon already had heart problems. Vernon died in 79. So my book is picked up after Vernon's probe left off because when Vernon died, that was it. Mm-hmm. You know, they dispatched the guys and all the evidence went away. So I was lucky in a sense that there was about 30 years of information out there before I got to it. And I think what I did is I rearranged everything, dug a little further into it, and put the capstone on it. But I'd be lying if I said all of this research was mine. No, I can't say that. And I'm very careful to cite the other people's uh, research that are in it. So Elvis Presley's father knew he was he he was murdered. Susanna Lee, Susanna Lee knew she was he was murdered, and she did this. <laughs> I can't believe Susanna. I can't believe you did this. She actually made the mistake in 1978 of going on Memphis television and said, when are we going to solve the murder of Elvis Presley? And she was on a show with George Klein, who of course was Elvis Presley's friend since they were children. And I don't know this for a fact that I've been told he thought that Elvis Presley was murdered. Mm-hmm. so Susanna goes on and tells this story and you know the, the backstage the back story of what they did to her afterwards was incredible I mean they they clipped her brake lines and sabotaged her car they sent somebody in to kill her and leaped, the guy leapt over the wall of her condo didn't find her home she was a big dog lover. She had five or six dogs. And, um, you know, he murdered, you know, five of the dogs. I think the sixth dog was in the garden and he didn't see the sixth dog. And the sixth dog made mincemeat out of this guy. And they had to call the emergency truck because I guess the guy was in a rough way. Mm-hmm. And the guy got arrested. It's all in the record. 
Um, and finally, they stopped the saw. She got shot at a few times. Uh, all she wants is this murder solved. She just wants this investigated. Mm-hmm. Finally, they quit the subtle tactics with Susanna Lee, and they just burned her house down. They were trying to get her to shut up and leave Memphis, which, of course, she had to at that point mm-hmm. for her own safety and for other things. She was trying to help Vernon Presley piece together Graceland after, you know, in the wake of Elvis's death. Graceland was a mess. I mean, financially, there was all kinds of loose ends, and Vernon was a sick man. I mean, he couldn't do it all. So she was helping out. Uh, she knew Elvis Presley was murdered, and she paid the. She she really bore the brunt of it. Um, there's an interview out there with um, in it's in my book of his girlfriend at the time said that she couldn't rule out foul play. <clears throat> Pardon me. So um, Dick Grob, there's if you go to my website, go to whomurderedbooks.com, There is a link to a video of Doctor Nicopolis saying who murdered Elvis. And it was, it was on, uh, it was a 1990 video. And I think it was a current affair. If you can remember that so far back, that's a while ago, but I mean, and nobody talks about this. It gets, you know, everybody hushes this up as though this, nobody knows about this, but I mean, there, there's a video there and he's talking about it. Who murdered him? You know, uh, of course, Dick Grob, like I mentioned before, Elvis Presley's chief of security. These people all know Elvis was murdered. Mm-hmm. which blew my mind. I thought I was the only one that knew it. And I thought, Oh my God. So here I am, I'm walking around with this dark cloud over my head for about eight months. And finally, one of my friends told me, you're going to have to write this book. And I said, I've never written a book before. And I said, the people are going to think I'm out of my mind. And he said, so let them, who cares? What would Elvis want you to do? And that's what did it right there. That's what did it. I said, you know what? I'm going to do the right thing. I'm going to write this book. And if people like it, fine. If they don't like it, that's fine too. I'm doing the right thing. So that's the backstory as to how this whole book came about and the, and the people behind it. Now I remember reading Ginger Alden stepped out after, after Elvis went into the, into his lounge to read at some point she stepped out for the evening. Well, that's not what is claimed, but that's had to be what happened. She couldn't have been with him when he died. Okay. It would have been impossible because Elvis had been dead for hours. And it just doesn't, the story doesn't wash. Right. I, there were other people who had her placed somewhere else. I'll, I'll, I'll save that for the book. Um, all of these famous people who have been murdered all seem to have little threads that go through all of them. There are little commonalities, the sanitized death scene, the planted evidence, the red herrings, uh, in the princess Diana book that you read. Did you read Diana? I did. What's your favorite book, by the way, you've read them all. Oh, wow. I think Elvis. Elvis. I'm a huge Elvis fan. Anyway, you like that one? Everybody's got, everybody's got their own favorite book. You know, it's kind of funny. Um, in, in the case of Elvis, they have the, um, these drug syringes that were planted there, you know, they do this, they enter the red herring to drive people crazy. Um, the sanitized death scene in case of princess Diana, what do they do? Diana is, <laughs> this one really takes the cherry and puts the cherry on the parfait. This one, she gets, you know, I mean, she's, uh, just pronounced dead. What do they do? They call in specialized equipment to sanitize the tunnel. And there goes all of the evidence 
You know, why do they make crime scene tape again? You have to ask yourself, right? Um, JFK gets his brain blown out. He gets taken into Parkland. They're working on his body. What's Secret Service doing? They have a bucket of water and two sponges, and they're cleaning out the de- the the limousine, the blood splatter. Yeah. All of these little teeny, they have little hallmarks all between a Marilyn Monroe, I think, takes the cherry. That's put that really puts the cherry on the parfait. I know I've enough, yeah. But investigators show up to her death scene. The maid is doing the laundry from the death scene. You know, uh, they try and stage a break in. And when they break the glass, the glass is on the wrong side of the house. Right. You know, and then they reposition Marilyn Monroe's body. When you die, the water pump in your body, your heart stops pumping Mm -hmm. and your blood pools. It settles. And if you, on your, on your face, you're going to get that purplish bluish hue or tint to your, to your, to your face. If you're on your face, Elvis Presley happened to be, um, Marilyn Monroe happened to be her body was repositioned because you can't, you got to trust the science. Okay. If you look at her body, liver mortis, liver mortis, stupid name. I didn't make it up. That's what I'm describing with this purplish hue was on the side of her face. That was up, not down. She had to have died in a different position. Mm-hmm. because the science doesn't work. Gravity doesn't work that way. Mm-hmm. So all of these people who have Sonny Liston, the exact same thing died n- nude from the waist down, just like Elvis. They pulled Elvis Presley's pants down because this is how the mob embarrasses tough guys. They did the same thing to Sonny Liston. They did the same thing to, to Benito Mussolini. This is how the mob embarrasses tough guys. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's amazing when you think about all of the, um, all of the, these, oh, and there are two death certificates filed in the case of Elvis Presley, one by Jerry Francisco and one by Dr. Nicopolis, and they contradict each other. This investigation is a mess. It's a mess. And you know what? Nobody has ever looked into this like I have, and I would welcome anyone to do it. Actually, there's one other girl. I can't say that. And her name is. She's from England. She lives outside of London. Her name is Judy Hunter. And we found each other online. And I did not know that she was doing research into her own thing. And um, we started a Facebook group together. So if you guys want to join this Facebook group and look at all the evidence we have. That'd be cool. cool. The name of the Facebook group is uh, Elvis Who Murdered Him. And I've started it with Judy. And there's a bunch of people there. Join that Facebook group. Uh, there's a lot of information out there I think you'll like. I also started one for Princess Diana, uh, Princess Diana who murdered her. Mm-hmm. And uh, you can join that one as well. And I'm looking for an admin, too, if you want to be a constant contributor to that. Join it. Help me out. Let's get these things solved. You know, I was thinking um, with the Ginger Alden thing, too. Um, Linda Thompson is the one that that, that made the, the statement of she didn't understand why, if Ginger was there, why she, why Ginger didn't get up and check on him? Because she felt that Elvis, because of his his drug intake, you know, where he would, where she knew he would pass out and stuff. She her her, her attitude was you you have to be up and down checking on him all the time. Huh. Yeah, a lot of people ask that question. 
Yeah. There's, there's a lot of people that ask that question, which leads me to the conclusion in the book that she quite possibly was elsewhere. Right, 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 right. You no, know, because Elvis right. had been dead for hours, hours. Yeah. I just wanted to point that out because that's one thing, you know, after he died, Linda Thompson really got vocal about was keeping an eye on him. So, you know, with Elvis, we have this drug. This is the stuff they put out there to in the media to drive people crazy and throw people off. You know, the single bullet theory with Oswald. Mm -hmm. All right. Um, <laughs> the drug theory with Elvis was a setup for Dr. Nicopolis. Dr. Nicopolis, after Elvis died, about a month after he died, was at a football game. And he got shot in the chest by a bullet. Here he is standing in the stands, right? Uh -huh. And I don't remember who he said he was with. Of course, he's gone now, too, so I guess I'll never know. Um, but the bullet, I mean, it made a little dent in his chest, but it kind of bounced off and it lost its, uh, its velocity, I guess. You know, I mean, all of these things, this just can't happen. All of these things are going on. You have the bullet theory to set up Dr. Nick. You have the single bullet theory to set up Oswald. You have the pristine bullet and the JFK thing, which is a, a red herring. You have the two drug syringes, which is a red herring. Um, just, you know, <laughs> you can't just make this stuff up. There are too many commonalities of all of these high-profile deaths. And that was the other thing, too. Um Elvis was an expert, I don't want to say expert drug taker, but he knew as much as the pharmacist knew because he had all those books. He had books on drugs, what yeah. they were mixed with, what they all look like, you know, blah, 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 blah. And if he, if he got something that he didn't recognize, he would look it up. Well, there's a reason for this. Like I said, in 1968, he almost, he almost died from anaphylaxic shock. I wouldn't if you call it an overdose, allergic reaction, maybe. Right. So. He became so, it freaked him out so bad that Dr. Nicopolis actually gave him the physician's desk reference of all the drugs. Mm -hmm. And Elvis used, I mean, there's only so much you can do if you're Elvis Presley. You can't do a lot. So right. he was a huge reader and he used to study all the different drugs. He knew all the different drugs, you know, what to take, what not to take, what they looked like. It got to the point it was written in one book where you could actually show him a pill and he could tell you what it was and who made it. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was, he knew more is more about prescription drugs than, you know, than, than just about anybody. Yeah. It became a big running joke. So here, we didn't talk about the drug thing yet, did we? It's a good thing you brought that up. No, we didn't because I mean, from what they were saying in the book about the whole thing with the codeine that Elvis confused the, the codeine pill with something else. Well, that's a nice story, but it would have been impossible for the yeah. guy to do it. Yeah. You know, in 1979, ABC's 2020, Geraldo Rivera is a, is a show host for 2020 and their ratings are sagging horribly and they're almost off the air and they had to find something to get, attract people to this subject. So they started to investigate Elvis and they did this visual thing out there where they dumped out thousands of pills and they said all of this was prescribed to Elvis Presley in the last whatever period of time before his death. Well, which is true, but it's a half truth. Like I said, in 76, Elvis almost went bankrupt and he didn't want to continue to answer to his father about every little dime he spent. So all of his, all of the people in his Memphis mafia 
were all taking drugs. Mm -hmm. They were taking uppers and downers and whatever the hell, who knows? So Elvis told Dr. Nicopolis, he said, look, just, just write everything under my name. I don't want to answer to my dad about this. So here we have this candy bowl of drugs in the middle of the room and everybody was taking what they wanted out of it. And if there was a couple left, maybe Elvis would take them, but it wasn't, you know, prescribed versus taking is two different things. And they also discovered something else at the autopsy. Um, you know, Elvis started to look pasty and bloated and he didn't look right in the last six weeks. And they discovered at the autopsy why that was. <clears throat> Pardon me. Elvis had, he had a birth defect. He had a twisted colon. And this is a common birth defect among boys, particularly. I don't know why it's among boys, but you find it more regularly around boys. Um, and you combine that with downers and other prescription drugs, you've got a mess on your hands. If I'm a, if I'm a doctor and I write you a prescription for uppers, you'll get the runs. If I'm a doctor and I prescribe you, um, a, a, a something for, is for like downers, you'll get constipated. Well, you mix constipation with a twisted colon, you've got a problem on your hands. So at the autopsy, they do this disgusting thing that's necessary to do called running the gut, where they take your intestines and they stretch it out and they take a flat build pair of surgical scissors and they cut up your intestine and they open it up. When they did that to Elvis Presley, they realized that his large intestine was gigantic and it was full of fecal matter. They hadn't had a bowel movement in almost a month. Oh. This is, and he was struggling with this. This is why he had that bloated, pasty. And doctor, and I remember uh, Warlick, Dan Warlick, telling me, "There's no way this guy ever could have passed that. It would have been absolutely impossible." So Elvis was scheduled for surgery on that. So this is what was behind that bloated, strange-looking appearance. And there are many photographs of Elvis. He looks much more thin. And then, of course, a few weeks later, he looks more bloated. He's really having problems with this. You know, I mean, Elvis did have some medical problems, but they were nothing that were life-threatening. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't a heart attack. It wasn't, he didn't OD. He didn't, it wasn't drugs. Um, you know, I mean, there, there were some medical issues, but Elvis didn't, he didn't OD. It wasn't a heart attack. It wasn't a suicide. That rumor's out there, too, and I know who's starting it, and damn them for starting it, too. I won't mention the name, but, um, you know, I mean, the story keeps evolving, and when any time you have five or six answers to one question, you know most of it's BS. Mm -hmm. So, and shame on them for doing that to Elvis. I think he deserved better treatment, and mm -hmm. which is why I write these books. I write these books because there's so little justice in this world, somebody has to go out there and really dig up the truth and tell you what's going on. You know, there were body doubles. He's not alive. Um, Graceland is a crime scene upstairs. You know, just come right out and tell us that. So let's solve the cold case with new evidence. And that's exactly what I've done in this book. Yeah, that is awesome. It's really awesome. Thank you so much for coming on. It's always so fascinating to have you on and listen to, your, and, and listen to this stuff. Well, it's great to be back on. Um, 
in March, I'm going to start writing my last book. <coughs> Excuse me. That's what happens when you uh, get a drink of water and it doesn't go down, right? <laughs> so in March, I'm going to start doing my uh, the last book, uh, and it's Who Murdered Tesla? <coughs> I have one book left, um, and it's on Nikola Tesla. And I've uncovered some evidence on Nikola Tesla where it was just it was just beyond obvious that this guy was murdered. And I don't know why no one's writing about this, but hey, I'll do it, right? Like right. I said, I'm gonna be a I'm gonna be a little wiener for one more year. I got one more book left in me, and then I'll go hot dog around and do something else. But there you go. Um, I expect that to be out. Oh, I don't know. I hate to give a timeline on it because it's such a gigantic project, but I'm hoping for I'm hoping for Christmas time. I've been doing research on it slowly for about two years. Cool, cool, cool. And we still got to talk about FDR, too. FDR is a story that everybody loves and everybody hates. They hate it because it's so damn far back in history, nobody knows anything about it. Right. And they love it because it's a really good story. <laughs> Some people, everybody has their favorite book. Some people, that's your favorite book. Mm-hmm. You know? So I think um, our, if you're agreeable, our next round will be FDR. Oh, sure. Yeah. I'd like to, I'd like to do your third interview before I uh, put this away in March. Sure. sure absolutely. Yeah. We can do that. We'll get you into February. In fact, I got a date. I got, I got a date in mind already for you. Okay. All right. <laughs> Sounds like a plan. Uh, I want to remind everybody who's read his books too. He's, he's got his website and he's looking for people to write reviews on his books to put on the website. Yeah. And what they're going to have to do is the best thing to do is just, um, email them to me or give them to me on Facebook. You can go in and you can leave a review there, I believe. But I think only people who have ordered from that site mm-hmm. can give a review on that site. Okay. So it just dawned on me. I'm redoing my website because I'm getting ready to go digital only. Right. books are going away. So I'm doing some work on the website and it dawned on me, you know, I've been selling these books for like 10 years and, and there's no reviews on this website. How terrible is this? And I've never, ever asked anybody for reviews before. So, um, find me on Facebook, Steve Ubaney, U-B-A-N-E-Y. If you have a book review, you can send it to me and I can put it up. If you can't put it up, um, you can always send it to Charlotte and she can email it to me. Yeah. Um, you know, I've got to get reviews coming to you. I've got to get something up there because it looks pretty terrible to not have reviews. Ah, my friend Marisa is reading your FDR book and she says it's awesome. I'm sorry, sorry, you broke up. My my, my friend Marisa is reading the uh, well, my producer is reading the FDR book and she says it's awesome. Oh, great! Well, that's good to hear. That's good to hear. Yeah, there's um. Like I said, it helps, it helps when you're a little bit nuts to write these books, you know, you have to, you know, you have to be a person like me who has to ask questions, right? You know, you have to be inquisitive and ask those questions and dig and dig. And there's so true, so many few investigators out there anymore, you know, Mm -hmm. um, you know, you have to ask yourself questions, you know, like, like I always say, you know, if I shot a mime, would I have to use a silencer? You know, you have to, you have to ask these crazy questions, you know? Um, and I'm one of those people. I used to drive my professors crazy, absolutely crazy. You know, if I melted dry ice, could I swim without getting wet? You know, I used to drive my science teacher insane, you know, but I was an honor student. So they had to put up with me. You know? <laughs> I was an honor. Student. Like I said, yes, your honor. No, your honor. There you go. <laughs> yes. I was here last week, your honor. <laughs> 
it's always fun to have you on. It's a blast. <laughs> it's a blast. Well, I had this book. I had, rocks. Yes, go ahead. I had a I had a blast. Uh, I'll come on your show anytime you want me to. And you know, everybody out there, happy New Year. Um, you know, have a great year. Um, and I really think people will enjoy my work. You know, I really do. And I, what I'd like to do, like I said before, we need to team up and we need to get these things on Hulu or on the history channel or something. Sure. Absolutely. We need to find a producer because this stuff, could you imagine if Humor or Elvis came out at the box office? That would be awesome. There'd be, there'd be six people in the country that wouldn't go. I could retire. <laughs> <laughs> if I put this evidence out there that what I've uncovered, and of course other people too, yeah. um, other people have researched this and they were really good. I mean, I, it would be it would be unbelievable. You, there has to be an independent filmmaker out there who who would like to put this thing somewhere. You would yeah. think. That's awesome you know? stuff. Awesome. All right, Steve. Well, we'll see you next month. Then I'll I'll, I'll get you a couple dates to choose from. Okay, thanks very much. It's great to be back. And everybody, um, you know, be positive and test negative. Talk to you later. Hey, uh, tell everybody your website again. Whomurderedbooks.com. 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 <laughs> Three times, just like Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. People like things in my heels. It's all good. <laughs> <laughs> Magically transported to the website. <laughs> and there you go. All right. Well, you have a good evening, Steve, and thank you so much. Yeah, it's always a pleasure. Talk to you soon. All right, buddy. Bye. Look at that. That was a great show. Steve's always fun to have on. He's a great guy. And uh, if you haven't read the Elvis book yet, I, I encourage you to read it. And I guess Marisa says we sh you should read the FDR book, too. And Princess Diana. Princess Diana was a great book, too. Tomorrow, kind of along the lines we're working tonight, Harry A. Millman is going to be with us, and he has written a book about celebrity deaths he is a toxicologist and he's worked on on several celebrity deaths so he's going to come on and talk to us about that so he'll be on tomorrow anyway if you like oh i can't want to get that far yet again i'm going to be uh then we're going to have more information on this i'm going to be uh speaking at the mystical minds conference and that's going to be in october uh, i believe in san jose and uh i'll have more information for uh for you for you for that uh, about midweek so you guys can check that out. And uh, there's gonna not only not only am I gonna be speaking, there's gonna be other speakers obviously too at, at this conference. So uh, I'm excited to do that. But uh, like I said, I'll have some more info for you on a website you can go to and all that to look into it. If you like the show, share it with five people. If you hated my show, share it with five of your enemies. We're equal opportunity here at California Haunts Radio. And again, you can visit CaliforniaHauntsRadio.com and you know to visit our YouTube site. Plus, CaliforniaHauntsRadio.com has all of our archives up there. So you can either click on the um, video that's right on the front page. It'll take you back into the YouTube you know, page, our YouTube channel. Or you can go up into the archives. All our archives are there. Plus, I'm updating all the Block Talk archives. What a lot of people don't realize is California Haunts Radio has been on, I think we're on our 18th, 19th year of doing the show. Uh, we, the first 15 years, 15 or so years, we did it on Block Talk Radio. And just the last couple of years, we have moved over to this format. So we've been around for a long time. Lots of guests in that time. Good guests, too. And uh, that leads me into my other little project. You see that ticker at the bottom? Well, uh, California Haunts Paranormal Team is a nonprofit. And everything you see here, me, well, not me, but you know what I mean, my hat, 
you see that the mic the lighting the backdrops all that stuff that comes out of my pocket and so including the internet you know in the StreamYard service and all that so you know unfortunately i'm not made out of money this is what i do especially especially with covid and all so if you could find it in your heart to donate to keep the show on the air and keep guests coming like still like steve ubain that would be great and that would be at paypal.me at california haunts or if you have issues with paypal venmo go to venmo and type in california haunts and it's that easy but i would really appreciate it i know our listeners would appreciate it because like i said i want to keep the show on the air and keep and keep it rolling and and have people like steve and talk, you know so it's a learning thing it's a learning thing for me it's a learning thing for you with this show and that's what i try to do i try to educate not only talk about ghostly things and creepy things but i like to have people on like steve or or the gentleman that talks about um spousal abuse and people like that you know or a health guy who talk about d- different health techniques to improve your health that's what i like to do i li- I'd like to bring information to you guys okay so anyway like i said i will see you tomorrow at 6 30 p.m pacific our usual time and i hope you enjoyed the show as much as i did and i thank you for coming have a good one <laughs>